Well, hello, everyone out there. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-hosts, Caroline Diarty Edwards and Maria Wickfilla. We've got two topics for you today. One is the MBA's demise, and we're going to talk about that in the context of a column written by the former CEO of GMAC, Sangeet Chaufla, who uh, entitled his essay, Reports of the MBA's Demise Are Greatly Exaggerated. We'll explain why he thinks that and what we think of his perspective. And then we want to talk about uh, the aftermath of the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action and how some schools seem to be responding, changing their essay prompts and getting that things that may help them uh, admit a diverse class in the aftermath of a ban on outright affirmative action. First, let's talk a little bit about the MBA's demise. We know, obviously, that we've had a few years of declining applications to U.S. MBA programs, and there have been a number of program closures as well, which is uh, partly the reason why some people might think the the bloom is off the rose of the MBA degree, which as Sankey uh, points out, and this is really true, it's the greatest educational innovation of the 20th century, because it is in fact still the number one graduate degree in America today, despite some decline. His argument is that you need to look at this in a global context. So while residential full-time MBA programs in the West have declined and some have fallen to the wayside. Things in China and India have heated up. Schools have gotten better there. And the market has shifted in the same way that the market in the automobile industry shifted from GM to Toyota to Volkswagen to BYD in China. And what we're seeing here is nothing more than the ebb and flow of the economy and how that changes the dimensions of the demand for the MBA. And at the same time, he's pointing out, which is something that we've pointed out in the past, that if you look at the growth of online MBA programs, you have seen explosive growth in the US that more than makes up for any possible decline. And in fact, overall enrollment in MBA programs is probably at record levels given uh, the online MBA phenomena. Maria, what do you make of all this? I think that he makes some really excellent points in his article. So everyone should go check it out because I think he's he's really thoughtful. And I think that it's it's easy for people to fall into a pattern of hand wringing over everything, you know, oh, these numbers are down and these numbers are down. But he brings up really good points about, you know, the points that you brought up about the overall numbers going up and, and just the demand and the locus shifting more to Asia. Uh, the other point that he made that I thought was really, really insightful was that when a company is growing, it tends to hire MBAs because the MBA has a sort of a general management strategic perspective versus when a company is cutting costs, they tend to hire people from the specialized master's programs, which are shorter in duration, much more tactical, much more hands-on in one specialized area. And that was a a, a sort of a differentiation that I had never thought of before. Mm. Um, so I think the overall category, I, I not only think that overall enrollment in MBAs total is probably the same or, or going up as you pointed out. But in fact, if you look at, if you broaden that umbrella to cover graduate education in business related topics, I, I think it's it's overall very strong and will continue to be strong. Yeah, very true. He makes a point too, and this is kind of interesting, is that for every 
MBA program in the U.S. that is closed with 50 to 100 student intakes. They've been essentially replaced by programs in the East with 500 to 1,000 uh, cohort programs, which is uh, true, in fact. Uh, uh, Caroline, you're our global expert. What do you think? Yeah, I thought it was an excellent article, and um, I agree that uh, it was a very, it was a very interesting point, as Maria said, about his distinction of how companies will often recruit MBAs versus specialized masters. And then, it, of course, it's true that a lot of those specialized masters are offered by business schools. So business schools have innovated, and they're offering different programs beyond just the traditional full-time MBA programs. So whilst there may be closures of some MBA programs, there are also new programs opening all the time. So it's not as if there is a, a demise of the business school sector as yeah, such definitely not. In, in the US. And I liked his segmentation of the market in, in how he talked about, you know, you have the, the elite programs in the US, particularly that are doing incredibly well and will continue to do incredibly well. And then you have the the international programs that are often the one year programs and therefore more attractive to candidates who are looking for a lower cost option. And then you have the online programs, right? And so there seems to be a sort of segmentation where candidates are choosing um, one of those three different options. And if your program doesn't fall into one of those categories, then as he says, you may find yourself in the mushy middle, um, and that's not not a comfortable place to be. And so, you know, I think that's why we have seen the demise of some programs, particularly in the US, where they um, struggle to compete with the other options that candidates have now, right? Um, which they might not have considered in the past. It's, it's a much more global market than it used to be, or any in the US, it's just some or a much more national market in the US for candidates who may not consider going abroad, but they may consider other options in the US beyond the, the local area than they might have considered in the past. And so some of those more local options struggle to attract candidates because, for example, you know, why not do a, a great online program from a prestigious MBA? versus choosing a local no-name business school uh, MBA option. So True. so I thought that segmentation into those three buckets was um, was quite interesting. Yeah, and you know, yesterday we had uh, the second day of our online MBA festival. And what's interesting is we interviewed current students along with admission officials. And many of the students were in that, you know, 20-something pocket, which is usually obviously the the sweet spot for full-time residential program. And for whatever reason, you know, maybe it's through the sole earner in their family. Maybe it's because they just have a job. They don't want to leave. Uh, they're happy there. They don't want to go off for a year or two years and would prefer to get the degree online. So you're also seeing some of this different kinds of segmentation, even in the online MBA market, that's drawing some people away from the residential full-time uh, market. I had to laugh, Caroline, at your use of the word mushy and, of course, your English accent, because it brought me back to the days of stopping by a pub on a road trip in the UK and having fish and chips with those mushy peas. Oh, mushy peas. I love mushy peas. There you go. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> the other thing that I think that needs to be pointed out too is that, you know, we obviously follow very closely and speak most about what I would call the elite programs, the most highly selective programs in the world. And even though in those programs, applications may be down, they are still highly selective. They are, their applicant pools are incredibly deep. It's very competitive and very hard to get into those schools, uh, which is why Caroline and Maria are in the business that they're in, helping people get into them because they're not very easy to get into. And there's no shortage of demand for programs that have great brands, terrific alumni networks, the best and brightest faculty, and in fact, the best and brightest students. So, you know, there is that that truth in the marketplace. So, you know, when you read the naysayers out there about the decline of the MBA, you got to remember, you know, they may be talking about a, the closure of a, of, a, of a second or third tier MBA program that had 50 uh, people going to it once uh, a year and was in the red. Uh, they're not referring to Harvard, Stanford, Kellogg, Columbia, Dartmouth, et cetera, which is at the high end of the market and s still is incredibly strong and robust. The other thing about business education in general is business schools, I think, have never been stronger. And here's why. Uh, most schools have capped their undergraduate enrollment. So if they have undergraduate business students, there are so many people who want to major in business today that they can't accommodate all of them. So in, in most of the schools, there are limits, quotas that prevent many people who want to major in business from majoring in business because there's been such an explosion in undergraduate enrollment. And, you know, Maria mentioned the specialty master's market. That market has exploded with specialty degrees now in sustainability and obviously supply chain management, which is a very hot topic business analytics, and the traditional finance, accounting, and marketing specialty master's degrees. Uh, most of the schools out there have a large portfolio of these degrees, and they're quite popular, and the employment rates out of them are very good. So, you know, you look at the overall picture, and um, business schools probably have never been in a better position. Let's talk about the Supreme Court's decision. You know, after the Supreme Court made its decision on affirmative action, we uh, had a podcast and we did an instant analysis. Now we're seeing more of a market response out there. Caroline, what are you seeing? So there have been a number of um, changes to essays. So some new essays or tweaking of the wording of existing essays. And I found this very interesting because maybe I'm reading too much into the tea leaves, but I do think that a lot of this is in response to that decision. Well, so one obvious change is that HBS has actually taken out a question um, relating to candidate background. So they have taken out a question that read, we understand that your racial, ethnic and cultural background may not be fully captured by the above options. So that was referring to the checkbox, right? The racial, ethnic checkbox. Yeah. Please feel free to use the space below to share more about your racial, ethnic or cultural identity. So they have taken that out. But on the other hand, other schools have asked questions where they seem to be inviting candidates to say more about their background. So it's interesting that HBS is taking question out and other schools are adding questions in. And they and may be that, more sensitive to this because of course, yeah. the two cases involved Harvard and UNC yeah. at the uh, Supreme Court. So they're probably in the overreaction stage. <laughs> yes, they're they're in the hot seats, right? So they, um, 
they probably deleted that pretty quickly. So number of changes. Um, so I've noticed changes at, at Kellogg, Tuck, um, Fuqua. I'll start with Kellogg. So Kellogg has two brand new essay questions. So the first essay asks about, so it says Kellogg leaders are primed to tackle today's pressing concerns everywhere from the boardroom to their neighborhoods. Tell us about a time in your life where you've needed a combination of skills to solve a problem or overcome a challenge. Which skills did you use and what did you accomplish? So I think that the use of the word neighborhoods in there is interesting, right? It's looking at the context of people's life experiences beyond work. It's not just looking for stories about their professional experiences, looking at their life experience as well. So I think that's quite a interesting addition to the to the wording there. And then essay two is more pointed. So the new question is, at Kellogg, our values are based on research that concludes organizations comprised of leaders with varied backgrounds and perspectives outperform homogenous ones. How do you believe your personal and professional experiences to date will help it to enrich the Kellogg community? Mm. So that's really looking to tease out stories about how how candidates have um, you know been in diverse environments or perhaps they have a diverse background. So I you know I think schools are really trying to signal to candidates that they want to know about their background, they want to understand their stories of what has shaped them. They want to really understand their personal story and not just their professional story and to send a message to candidates that they are committed to building a diverse classroom in the context where they know that candidates know that they are not able to take those check boxes into account anymore. So I think, you know, they have tried to be more explicit in the essay questions to signal to candidates, please tell us your personal stories. Um, And so with Tuck, for example, um, they have a new question, tell us who you are, how have your values and experiences shaped your identity and character, how will your background contribute to the diverse Tuck culture and community? And then they also have a new question, describe a time you meaningfully contributed to someone else's sense of inclusion in your professional or personal community. And CBS has also reintroduced an old question about um, diversity, equity, inclusion, which they had dropped, I think, for a couple of years, and they've reintroduced that. Um, So the question is about, uh, let me just bring this one up. So the, the new question is, the Phillips Pathway for Inclusive Leadership is a co-curricular program designed to ensure that every CBS student develops the skills to become an ethical and inclusive leader. Through PPIL, students attend programming focused on five essential diversity, equity, inclusion skills. Um, it describes those. Tell us about a time when you were challenged around one of these five skills. Describe the situation, the actions you took and the outcome. Mm. Um, so that's you know clearly a DEI question that was was dropped and then has has made a comeback. So I think that you know the schools are looking to signal to to candidates that they are and and they've said you know they've made statements as well right right after the 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 ruling came out from the Supreme Court that they remain committed to build building a diverse classroom. But I think that they are trying to 
signal to candidates that they are explicitly looking for those stories from them in their essays because they will not be able to, they will be blind to those racial ethnic text uh, uh, checkboxes, right? So they need the candidates to be more explicit in telling them about their backgrounds in those essays. Right. Caroline, do you think your tea leaf uh, interpretation is on the mark? I think it is. The other thing is, I, I think people are looking for more detail so that they can admit a diverse class without saying it's a minority. Right. So so in other words, if you put more emphasis on and we mentioned this before, income or first generation, or you get more information on one's backgrounds and the adversity that, that they had faced, uh, you know, it's more colorblind, but it's still looking for people who've been able to overcome difficulties in a way. Right. Yeah, that's right. And and so I think also schools have been preparing the ground for this for some time. And of course, you know, this. This legal case, I think it's been running for like 10 years, right? It's been running for ages. And so schools knew that this was, they knew that this was going to happen and they knew True. that what the likely outcome was. Um, I was talking with someone from MIT recently and he said, uh, uh, well, actually I was talking to him the day the decision came out and he said, look, you know, we've been, been anticipating this, right? They knew it was going to happen. Of course, you know, they have a lot to digest because it's a very complex ruling. It's a very long ruling and there's a lot a lot for them to figure out in terms of how they implement this. But, you know, I think it's interesting. MIT last year, they introduced an optional um, short answer question. Um, and I think that that was in, in, in anticipation of this decision. So they introduced a, a question last year, which reads, how has the world you come from shaped who you are today. For example, your family, culture, community all help to shape aspects of your identity. Please use this opportunity if you would like to share more about your background. So that's an optional question, 250 words, right? So it's about half a page. Um, so I think that, that they were anticipating that at some point, they're going to be looking to the essays to learn more about people's backgrounds, um, because they won't have access to that checkbox anymore. Right. Maria, your take? Yeah, I, I, you know, in addition to all the the changes that Caroline pointed out, um, there's a there was a subtle thing that I recently only recently noticed about the the Columbia diversity essay. This was an essay that did exist a few years ago, and they brought it back. But I think it's interesting that there are some real little subtle changes to the wording that I think means that the bar is is being raised. So I think schools. You know, when, when some of these issues really started to come to the fore of the national consciousness or perhaps international consciousness, you know, a few years ago and schools began sort of introducing some of these diversity essays, it was it was more around, you know, talk about exposure that you've had to diverse people. And now I think the bar is getting progressively higher for, okay, it's been a few years now that we are all more aware of these topics. So are you actually doing things about it? Um, so for example, this is so subtle, but you know, the CVS uh, diversity, the Phillips Pathway for Inclusive Leadership, it used to say, it listed out these five different, um, you know, creating an inclusive environment, mitigating bias and prejudice, and these sorts of five, five topics around diversity. Um, and first of all, they've updated the language a little bit. So before it was it was more there were a few opportunities for you to be a little bit more broad like one of them was called managing difficult conversations and it's been changed this year to managing intercultural dialogue 
So I think I think maybe when they first had this question a few years ago, people who had not done anything with people who were different from them were like, oh, a difficult conversation was a time that I told my boss that I wanted a raise. But now they're they're making it more specific so that people can't kind of wiggle out of it. And the the core question used to say, tell us about a time you were challenged around one of these five skills. And now it's describe a time where you had the need to utilize one or more of these, one or more of these five skills. So before you were challenged around one of them, and now it's like, you know, utilizing to me has a much more proactive uh, connotation. And so I think that they are really trying to raise the bar. And I think there are a few other little subtle examples as, as well. Uh, another another school that has changed its essay questions to, to I believe, also incorporate uh, places where people can talk more about their background is Yale. So for, for years, Yale's question, they had one question, and it was, describe the biggest commitment you've ever made. And now they've got a couple of, of different options where you can still answer that one if you want, but you can also... Uh, they gave you an opportunity to talk about like a community that you've that you've contributed to and learned from and also the biggest challenge that you've ever faced or a big challenge that you've faced. And so I think that they're basically opening the door for people to talk about what's meaningful to them, but just perhaps in slightly different ways. You know, my, my take on it is that they're still fundamentally the same question. They still want to know what's important to you, but they're kind of providing different flavors of it so that you can talk about things like you coming from let's being the first in your family to go to college, for example, or coming from a a, a less uh, you know a, a less uh, affluent background, for example. Right. Yes, and I'm sure that more schools are going to be changing things around a, li- a little bit more. Probably, we'd see more of an impact next year because, in some cases, even though the Supreme Court decision was anticlimactic, everyone assumed that. Uh, the court would ban affirmative action uh, admissions policies. The full runt of that and the filth, you know, much of the thought about it and how to change admissions policies still lags to some degree. Uh, I know some admissions officials who told me, you know, they're having trouble getting real guidance from uh, the legal department about what they can and what they can't do. Uh, just like within weeks before before the decision was made, so they were they felt paralyzed. In fact, to change or do anything about it until a decision was rendered, and people could read the decision closely and see uh, if there are other ways that they could sort of get at what they need to get at in crafting a a good class. So I would bet the biggest changes will occur in the next admission season. Uh, when people have had the time to really think about this and figure out, okay, how do we still recruit, uh, admit, and enroll a highly diversified class of MBA students? So we'll see that, I'm sure, in the next round. Okay, so there you have it. Is the MBA in demise? No. Are business goals in trouble? No. Are business schools changing uh, what they ask of applicants to get a better read on them and make better selections? Yes. All your answers to all the MBA questions uh, are answered here at Business Casual. Thanks for listening. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. 